passage is from the book of Daniel, and uh, from Daniel chapter 7, and if you open up your pew Bibles, you'll find that on page 631, and uh, then we'll be reading also from Luke's Gospel chapter 9. So, thank you, Kay. Daniel chapter 7, starting at verse 9. As I looked, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow. The hair of his head was white like wool. His throne was flaming with fire, and its wheels were all ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court was seated and the books were opened. Then I continued to watch because of the boastful words of the horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain and its bodies destroyed and thrown into the blazing fire. The other beasts had been stripped of their authority but were allowed to live for a period of time. In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshiped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. And now from Luke chapter 9, 18 to 27, which is on page 733, starting at verse 18. Once when Jesus was praying in private and his disciples were with him, he asked them, who do the crowds say I am? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others that one of the prophets of long ago has come back to life. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Peter answered, the Christ of God. Jesus strictly warned them not to tell this to anyone. And he said, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests and teachers of the law and he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Then he said to them all, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit his very self? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory and in the glory of the Father and of all the holy angels. I tell you the truth, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God. Father, thank you for your word and we just do pray now that you would free our minds from those things which would distract us 
help us to focus on what your word is saying to us, that we might be changed. And we pray these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. How are your New Year's resolutions going, by the way? Have you made a few as yet? Well, it's a good time to, to do so as we close the, the book on one uh, year of life and we have the opportunity to start uh, writing a, a new story for our lives in 2016. It's a great time to press the pause button on life and to reflect on uh, how life could be better and to set some fresh goals. Perhaps uh, your goal might be to eat better or to exercise more, uh, to lose weight, to uh, uh, perhaps to feed your mind with uh, more educational kind of books. There's some good goals. Uh, whatever it is that you need to improve to make your life just that little bit better. New Year's resolutions are about living well and fulfilling our potential. But uh, with our resolutions, are we sometimes just tinkering around the edges of life, uh, fixing things which, which do actually matter? I think it wouldn't be a bad idea for me to get a bit slimmer and a bit fitter and a bit smarter. Uh, these could be good things for myself, but sometimes we can be uh, tinkering with those things at the edges of life, but not actually resolving to deal with the issue uh, of what it means to be, uh, to be truly fulfilled as a human being. Now, I use that uh, word, the term human being, quite deliberately, because as humans, we are different from the other creatures, aren't we? We're, we actually have the ability to, to reflect on life, to consider life's meaning and to think about how well we are doing at living life. We've got that ability to reflect on those things. And when we open up our eyes and we look at the world, look at the universe around us, we know that, we know that there is a God. Uh, we know that there is uh, one who has created our, uh, all that there is. And we know that our lives have a purpose which is somehow more meaningful than the other creatures. The, the Bible, of course, affirms uh, these things which we instinctively know about God and about us. Because the Bible tells us that we are all, every one of us, is made in the image of God which amongst other things means that uh, we, we alone have been designed and we've been built in order to have a relationship with our creator and relationships with one another. Now, this, this truth from the Bible has actually got the, the power to lift our thinking about New Year's resolutions onto a profoundly higher plane, a higher level, uh, because a, a higher plane than any of the other goals that we might uh, think about setting for ourselves for this year. Now, if you're visiting us today, uh, let me just fill you in on where, where we're up to in our sermons. 
For the, per for, for the past couple of months, we've been working our way through the Gospel of Luke. And as we've been doing so, we've, <clears throat> we've explored the miracles of Jesus, uh, healing the sick, driving out demons, um, calming a storm, uh, even raising uh, dead people back to life. And the confronting question for us has been, who is this man? Uh, who is this man who resisted the temptations of Satan in the, in the desert so effectively? Uh, who is this man who taught with an authority that was just unheard of? Uh, who is this man who exercised power and dominion and authority over the natural and also the supernatural. Who is this man? He is flesh and bone. Uh, he is a man like us. He has personality like us. But what we've seen is that he is much more than who we are. Now, today when we come to the passage which Kay read to us earlier on, and if you wouldn't mind opening your Bibles at Luke chapter 9, that'll be helpful. There's an outline of the talk in your service sheets as well uh, if you're a note-taker or if you just want to want to know how much longer it's got to go in the sermon that's also very helpful but um, <clears throat> if you open open your bibles at luke chapter 9 verse 21 the context is that the penny has just dropped for the apostle peter <clears throat> jesus has uh, said to his disciples who do the crowds say that i am and some people have said, well, some people say that you're, the, uh, you're Elijah, some say that you're John the Baptist, some say that you're one of the other prophets that's come back to life again. And so they're saying that you're more than just your average man, but you're only like those guys. And Jesus has eyeballed his disciples and he says, well, who do you say that I am? And Peter, who doesn't often get it right, but he did on this occasion, Peter gets it right. He says, you are the Christ of God. That is, you are God's anointed. You are God's king, the, the ruler over God's kingdom. And so in verse 22, as Peter has just said that you are the Christ of God, when we get to verse 22, how now does Jesus describe himself? He calls himself, do you see it? Verse 22, the son of, what does he say? The son of man. Now, what do you think that that means? Well, at the very least, it's got to be saying that he's, that he's like us, that he's identifying himself with us. Uh, we know that Jesus is truly God, but he's also truly man. In fact, he's more than just truly man. Jesus is the true man. Jesus is the man who, unlike us, has always lived in the way that he, he ought to be living, that we ought to be living, that he has always existed in perfect, obedient relationship with his father. Now, when I uh, set goals for myself, uh, I like to think of what is my, what is the end game? What, what is the thing, what is the big vision 
what is the thing which I need to be uh, arriving at so that I can set smaller goals that'll help me to arrive at that end point. And that's why we, uh, we read the Old Testament passage earlier. Because in Daniel chapter 7, and you might want to uh, have that open again if you want to flip over to Daniel 7 on page 631. In Daniel chapter 7, God gave Daniel the prophet a vision of ultimate reality. It's a picture of heaven. It's a picture of God the Father, who is referred to as being the Ancient of Days. It's the Ancient of Days seated on his eternal heavenly throne, surrounded by thousands upon thousands who are serving him, and 10,000 times 10,000 others who are with him, an innumerable number who are, who are with the Ancient of Days in his heavenly throne room. And then Daniel saw what he describes as being one who is like a son of man. This son of man approaches the Ancient of days in the heavenly throne room. And listen to what happens next. If you have a look at verse 14. In verse 14, he approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. Verse 14, he was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. That is the vision of ultimate reality. Now, our materialistic view of reality says that the only reality that there is is that which we can see, hear, smell, and touch. A materialistic view says that our existence finishes when we come to the end of our natural life cycle, if we even last for that long. That when you're dead, you're dead, and that's it. This is all, this is as good as it gets. Which is actually a very dissatisfying picture, isn't it? when you think about it. And although it's a dissatisfying picture though, it's actually quite a reasonable view if that is all that we know about reality, if, if all we know is our physical world. But God has not been silent. God has spoken and God has revealed to us that there is an ultimate reality, a reality which can be our reality, the reality of perfect existence in God's perfect heaven forever and ever. And the key to it is God's Christ, God's King, who is, who is described in Luke chapter 9 
as the Son of Man, the one who approaches the Ancient of Days in Daniel 7 and is crowned with all glory and honour and authority. The one who Jesus identifies as being himself. So as we have a look at uh, Luke chapter 9, verse 22, let me read that for you. In verse chap- chapter 9, verse 22, Jesus said, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Now, last uh, week we unpacked what it meant for Jesus to be rejected, to be killed, to be raised to life again on the third day. But we have to ask the question, what would the disciples have understood by all of this? What would they have made of it, particularly uh, if they knew from Daniel 7 uh, what it means for Jesus to be the Son of Man? We know that they were expecting that there would be a Christ, but they were expecting uh, Jesus to, to raise up a rebellion This was not unheard of before. Uh, In fact, in the period of time between the Old Testament and the New Testament, there was a successful rebellion that took place. And so they were expecting Jesus to raise up a rebellion, to drive out the Romans and to set up an earthly kingdom similar to that which existed under David and King Solomon. But ultimate reality is a spiritual kingdom, which we saw last week and in this passage required the death of Jesus to pay for sin, required for his resurrection as the King of Heaven to be resurrected and ascended to the right hand of God the Father. And this is why Jesus in this passage says these things must happen. They must happen. Now I want to ask the question then, how does this therefore affect your goals for your life? Well, if Jesus has been raised from the dead, as the Bible claims, if he is exalted to heaven and is the king of heaven, then we want to be connected with him, don't we? We actually want to be united with Jesus. And this is part and parcel of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Being a follower of Jesus means, doesn't just mean that we agree with his teaching, as if he's some sort of a moral philosopher. Uh, being a follower of Jesus doesn't mean we're kind of like a fan club of Jesus, like, you know, you might follow a rugby league team. Being a follower of Jesus means to be united with Jesus, to be at one with him. And we see this in verse 23. Have a look at that. In verse 23, Then he said to them all, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Three things. Deny himself take up his cross and follow Jesus. 
To be united with Jesus means not only that we share in his glory, but also that we share in his rejection, we share in his dying, we share in his self-denial, if you like. And this is very important to us because of the nature of sin. What is sin? Well, in essence, the nature of sin is that we have a, a self-will that is motivated by self-interest. And so, uh, you've heard me say it before, that, you know, in essence what that means is that I want to live my life, my way, not God's way, thank you very much. That's sin. But Jesus died to pay for sin. And so if I truly value that, then I will now want to give my life over, give my will over to God, to serve him, to honour him and to please him, which makes sense. It's a sensible thing to do, isn't it? He is our creator. He is our saviour. But the Bible doesn't promise that that would be an easy road. I have in the past heard people say, come to Jesus and all your problems will be over. And yet every day we are tempted, are we not? We are tempted to sin in all sorts of ways. Jesus says here that if we're to follow him, we must take up our cross. In the first century, if a person took up their cross, if you saw a person walking down the road with a cross over their shoulder, where do you think they were heading? They were heading to their, to their death, weren't they? Jesus says we are to take up our cross. Now, for some Christians, following Jesus actually does mean death. And that's why we prayed earlier on for Christians who are in countries where persecution uh, is at a premium uh, against Christians. But for all of us, following Jesus means that every day we are faced with temptation and therefore we must die. We must die to our self-will. Now, how does this work out in practical terms? Well, uh, sometimes when I am uh, in a situation where I'm tempted to sin, for example, uh, when someone has done the wrong thing by me, I sure do know how I would like to respond. Uh, do you know what I mean by that? You experience that yourself? I think to myself what the old Scott would do. <laughs> And things go around in my mind as to things I could do to retaliate. And then I remember that Christ died for me. And I think, well, I know what I want to do, but how is it that God wants me to respond in this situation? What does God want me to do? And that's the nature of being united with Christ in his death. To be united with Christ in his death means that we, we, day, we, we daily die to, our, to ourselves and to our self-will. We subjugate 
our self-will and give ourselves over to God's will. And that's a struggle. It is a daily struggle. And sometimes we wonder, well, that sounds great, but how can I possibly do it? Well, the Apostle Paul puts this very nicely, and I wonder if you might want to keep a bookmark in Luke 9 and just flip over a few pages to Galatians chapter 2 for a moment. Galatians chapter 2. Not sure what page that's on. 834. 824. Yep, thank you very much. So in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, Paul is talking about his own experience. And he says this in verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ. That is, I have died with Christ. And I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Now do you see what Paul's saying? He's saying that he is united with Christ in his death because he says that I have been crucified with Christ, but he's also saying I'm united with Christ in his, not his death, but in his life because it is Christ who lives in me. The great news, the great news is that if we are united with Christ in his death, then we are also united with Christ in his life because Christ now lives within us by his Holy Spirit. Which means that we now do have the power to follow Jesus. It's, it's not easy. It is a lifelong struggle. Jesus didn't say, take up your cross once and you won't have to deal with sin ever again. No, he said, take up your cross how many times? Daily, every day of your life and follow me. And do you know what I've noticed? Every time that we choose to die to ourselves, Every time when we're faced with a temptation to sin and we choose to subjugate our self-will and give ourselves over to living not, God's, not our way in that situation but God's way, something very, very strange happens. We actually find that we experience some satisfaction even though it might be costly for us. There's something peaceful, there's something good, there's something almost indescribably satisfying when we know that we've actually chosen to live God's way. And there's a reason for that, because when we obey God, then we are actually living in the exact way that we've been designed to live. Uh, it's, it's, it's a perfect match. We're living for the very purpose for which we've been created. And so in that sense, we gain life by losing ourselves. 
Now, I say that that's a strange thing because this is very odd in terms of... This is not what the world teaches us because the world keeps on saying in various ways, uh, sometimes subtle, sometimes not so subtle, but the, the world keeps on telling us that the, the purpose in life... Is to, is to squeeze as much as possible out of the 80, 90 or however many years that we live. And you should set your goals accordingly. You set your goals to maximise your experiences, set your goals to maximise your consumption because there isn't anything else. Eat, drink, be merry, for tomorrow we, we die. And that's it. Although I've noticed that at funerals, people usually like, they've got some sort of vague sort of notion that, you know, Auntie Mary has now gone to meet Uncle Bill in heaven. But they don't actually really believe that because it doesn't actually change the way they live their lives in the here and the now. And they miss the point of what it means to be truly human which we see in verses 24 and 25. Let me read that for you. Verse 24, For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit his very self? Now imagine a person who has established an ambitious goal for their life. And they achieve that goal only to find that the very thing which they set out to achieve turns out to be the very thing which destroys them. Destroys them personally. Destroys their health. Destroys their reputation. Destroys their relationships. And we see that sometimes, don't we, with um, people who set out to become a famous singer and they find that the very fame that they sought is the thing which destroys them as persons. Or the person who sets out to become rich and in their billionaire status finds that their reputation shot to pieces, that they don't enjoy true friendships and that they are destroyed as a person. What about a person with more modest goals than that, more ordinary kind of goals like you and I might have, like education goals, career goals, material security goals, family goals? These are all good things, aren't they? But what about when we have those goals when we're not actually trusting Christ and we're not actually living for God? What good will any of those things be for us on the day of judgment. What good will my education, my career, my financial security, my beautiful family be for me if on the day that I stand before the judgment throne of God, he says to me, depart from me, I never knew you. What good would it be then? And this is a message which we need to hear because Satan does not want us, he does not want you, 
to be united with Christ either in his death or in his resurrection. Satan would absolutely love for us to stop dying to ourselves and to start living for ourselves. We see examples of this in scripture. In, for example, in 1 Timothy chapter 6, Paul talks about some Christians who presumably were part of the church who set themselves some goals, but their goals ended up being more centred on the things of this world than being centred on the things of Christ, uh, particularly money and the things which money could buy. Listen to what he said, and I quote, Some people, eager for money, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Can you imagine that? Imagine knowing that, <clears throat> that Christ died for your sins. Imagine knowing that that ultimate reality is God's perfect heaven, where there is no suffering, where there is no pain, where there are no tears, because there is no death because sin has been dealt with. Imagine knowing that the purpose of human existence is not about possessions, power and prestige, but it's actually about knowing your creator, knowing God, serving other people. And as the Westminster Shorter Catechism point put, puts it, enjoying your God forever. Imagine knowing all of that. And now imagine wandering away from it. Imagine exchanging all of that for the things of this world. There's a lot more I'd like to say about this passage and uh, that's why it's good that we've got next week. But today I just want to get you to think about your... New Year's resolutions. I read an article the other day which said that there was some research done by some university people that uh, said that 90% of New Year's resolutions fail by the end of January. I don't think we need to have some university researchers tell us that, did we? We all know that. We could have, we could have come up, we could have sold that story to the newspaper. Perseverance is the problem. Uh, the, the issue is that after the initial burst of enthusiasm, we, we just don't stick at new things long enough to, to punch through the, the difficult barrier, after which if we did punch through it, things would become a bit easier because those new habits, those new things become a, a part of who we are. We just don't have the perseverance to punch through the difficult times so that our resolutions become much easier for us to fulfil. This morning I want to encourage you to establish resolutions, but to do so in the light of ultimate reality. Now, the question is, well, what, what will that mean for you? And it's going to mean different things for all of us, 
Some of the easy things for me to talk about as a preacher would be, and I mean this with all seriousness, it may involve resolving to, uh, to read your Bible and to pray every day. That's an easy one for me to say. Uh, a few years ago, it wasn't New Year, but uh, a brother in Christ has a, had a word with me and shared with me some stuff that he'd been reading. And I made a resolution. My quiet times had been patchy. made a resolution on that day that I was just going to read my Bible and pray every single day. Um, hasn't failed so far um, in general terms. That's a good thing for us to do, to make that resolution and to do it. So it might be reading the Bible and, and praying every day could be your resolution for the new year. Or it could be fellowship-oriented. It might be that you, you just need to bite the bullet and join the Bible study group that you've been sort of putting off joining uh, for, uh, for the last 12 months. And, and making a commitment to being more actively involved in, in church life, to be regular, to be engaging with people. There's some of the more obvious things to talk about to a, a group of Christians such as we are here. But there are some more difficult uh, resolutions that could be arrived at as well, some which are, are more personal to yourself. And I'm talking about uh, resolving to deal with that part of your life, whatever it may be, where you know that you have not died to yourself, that you're not united with Christ in his death in respect to that issue and you're not united with Christ in his life in living differently. I don't know what that area of life might be for yourself. It might be pride, it might be gossip, it might be slander, it might be lustfulness. Whatever it is for you, that area of life where you know that you've not been honouring God, chances are that other people know that you haven't been honouring God in that area as well, <laughs> is it time to, to make the change? Is it time to think about the ultimate reality and start implementing that? in the way that you're living now and to punch through the hard barriers not to just start with an initial burst of enthusiasm but when it gets difficult when it gets tiresome to persevere so that that change might actually become a part of who you are this new year may we be people who resolve to live, who resolve to truly live by dying to ourselves. Let's pray. Father, we want to thank you for the great vision of the heavenly reality. And Father, as we set that vision before us, we pray that it would be the inspiration for us to be living in a way now 
where we subjugate our will to your will and where we are united with Christ in his new life. Father, we pray for each one of us that we would indeed pause and that we would think about those areas of life that need to change and that by your power of Christ dwelling in us that we would be enabled to bring about that change. We pray these things to your honour and your glory. Amen.